Welcome to Spiro Avenue. And now your host, Justin Spiro. Yes, welcome to Spiro Avenue. I am your host, Justin Spiro. Thank you for joining us today. You know, this is our first live production since the very pilot episode of this production. We are happy to have you listening live, hopefully. For those listening on the record, uh, thank you for joining us as well. You know, I want to talk a little bit about Detroit today, and we're going to get into a lot of things with Detroit. They're calling it the new Detroit. That's sort of the, the buzzword around town, the new Detroit, the district Detroit coming downtown. And it's this new downtown district funded primarily by the Illiches and imagined by them. It's covering about 50 blocks in total. You have restaurants, you have bars, various other businesses. A lot of these places still up for lease, yet to be determined. But it's a, a supposedly thriving new landscape in downtown Detroit. And you look at the Illich Run website homepage for the District of Detroit, it says, quote, imagine Detroit as it once was. And also, quote, imagine Detroit as it can be again. It's our own little Motor City version of MAGA in Detroit. Make Detroit great again. That's the Illiches are playing that card at this point. But really, I, there's a lot of enthusiasm for this project, but not everyone is so thrilled with it. And there's actually been quite a bit of opposition, some of that in our room, and we'll get to that in a minute. You look at the tax dollars, $250 million in tax subsidies to build Little Caesars Arena, another $35 million in tax money going to accommodate the Pistons move downtown, which was later added. And then you look at the net worth of these players. Mike Illich and his family at the time before he passed, worth over $6 billion. Tom Gore's worth nearly $3.5 billion. Certainly probably not the neediest of people for tax subsidies. So where do I stand, right? I usually come into this show with a pretty strong opinion. I, I usually come out swinging about something or another. And I got to be honest, I, I can't hot take you today. I'm, I'm conflicted on this personally. I'm conflicted. And that's partly why I have two really smart guests with me to help me flesh this out. And I'll tell you why I'm conflicted. Just break this down into micro issues. Should a billionaire tycoon worth north of $6 billion probably pay for their own stadium? Yes. I don't, I don't think there's a whole lot of opposition there. But do I think these properties, not just the new arena, but the surrounding district, gets built absent of that tax money? I don't. And maybe I'm wrong. That's just my opinion. I don't think they build it. Do I want it there? Yeah, I kind of do. And maybe I'm a bad person for saying that. I want more stuff to do downtown. You know, I live uh, almost an hour away from downtown Detroit. I live in the lovely suburb of Rochester, Michigan. If I want to go downtown, I want more to do, not less. I want to be able to make a night out of it. So I'm kind of happy it's there. And really, I could ask you, is the city really better off without the District Detroit? Again, I would say no. And there's many metrics of looking at this. I can only look through my own lens as a suburbanite coming down, looking for things to do. It's a terrific development. But we are going to flesh this out because there are a lot of questions here that need to be answered and have not been really explored deeply by enough people in my estimation. And in studio tonight, you've heard me mention them often on the show. In my estimation, the two best journalists in the state, it doesn't matter if you're talking sports, politics, whatever. The two finest journalists in the state have what I think is a little bit of a different view on where the city is going. And I'm going to let them answer for that a little bit. But just from my own experience following them, I see one writing a beat called Detroit on the Rise for Cranes Detroit. And I see the other writing a story almost every day about the city's backbreaking struggles and gross misuse of funds and corruption in government, et cetera, et cetera. So you have on one side really gifted journalists saying, 
Detroit's on the rise, I think. I mean, that's the name of the beat. It's mostly an upbeat column from what I've read. Certainly no absence of criticism entirely, but a more upbeat take on the city of Detroit. And then conversely, you have a a little bit more of an adversarial approach to the direction Detroit is going uh, fiscally, socially in a lot of ways. So I want to flesh this out a little bit. We are going to welcome in first Chad Livengood of Cranes Detroit, formerly of the Detroit News, and he is writing that Detroit on the rise beat for Cranes. And across from him in our studio at Spiro Avenue, we have Steve Neveling, editor-in-chief of Motor City Muckraker. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, Chad, I want to start with you. I mean, you're covering Detroit on a daily basis. I mean, where do you stand on the taxpayer subsidies, this great sum of money going to help build the district Detroit? Where do you stand on this? Well, I don't really take a personal stand. Uh, I I observe and and write about this in the context of, just as you kind of alluded to in your introduction, if we didn't have this, where would we be and what what would be going here? And um, I mean, the illage is the fact is they were acquiring land in this in this 50 block radius for some, uh, you know, 20 years or more uh, parcels. Now, you know, they can make were definitely and rightly criticized for just sitting on it. But they had a plan. They had a strategy um, to do this uh, at some point uh, and to basically get on the other side of 75 and, and break out of the uh the you know the, the interlocked um, you know ring of the uh, of downtown and try to exp- and try to cr- create some kind of forged district um, between downtown and the Cass Avenue or corridor and what is now you know mostly referred to as Midtown um, and so you know I'll just I just I'm here to write about what what's happening and and where the city's going um, I'm my my beat at Cranes is kind of it's 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 not as much you know focused on this day to day real estate as it's focused on how do you build this larger, um, the city that can basically sustain itself. Uh, that how do you build something other than just a, a gilded city of seven square miles in downtown Midtown and where do you get out into the neighborhoods and build, uh, rebuild the middle class um, uh, of Detroit that that once was as as the district of Detroit you know sort of refers to and, and that's been my argument just again I can only speak from my perspective not a local Detroiter not from anyone any from anywhere else I can only speak from my perspective but you talked about trying to not have just a seven block or whatever sort of gilded uh, area of Detroit anything that expands that circle that I find to be uh, a safe area safe zone I know a lot of local Detroiters, maybe Steve will speak on this in a second, are defensive over Detroit and the safe areas, and they act like it's not as bad. I've worked in Detroit for um, close to a year, uh, downtown on downtown every day. It's a little dicey down there in some areas. It just is. And I'm not in, uh, you know, I'm in a law office down there. So I mean, it's, it's not like a bad area of Detroit, but I know if you venture out, it gets a little dangerous. I view it as a positive development. From my perspective, there's more places to go where I feel safe, where I can take my young daughter, where I can take my wife, where I feel comfortable with my wife going out alone. Steve, you've had a, a little bit of a different take, to say the least, on this whole issue. Can you tell us your position on these tax dollars, the development as a whole? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and I, I agree uh, with, 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 with a lot of what Chad is describing as, you know, what he's doing on the beat is sort of looking at this 7.2 square miles uh, and, and how do we spread this to create a middle class in the neighborhoods. Um, for me, the issue with the 
with the tax incentive, which which is about a, you know $285 million. Uh, the city's actually going to have to refinance that in a few years um, at a higher interest rate. We're, it looks like it's going to be a higher interest rate now, so we're going to potentially be talking about $700, $800 million uh, when this is all uh, paid off. And that's including also the uh, the $34.5 million that Tom Gores got from, from the Pistons. Um, so, you know, the, the issue that, that I have always raised was um, you have a lot of development that is already happening in down, the downtown area. I mean, Dan Gilbert has done an amazing job uh, on his own without relying on tax dollars uh, to, to build what he's done. And he's accomplished that largely without. Uh, now, if you go look at what he's doing right now in, 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 in Cleveland, now, you know, this is something that's been happening for a lot of times. There's a great book called Field of Schemes. Uh, and it's about how uh, owners of sports team, most of whom are billionaires, are able to uh, essentially blackmail a city and say, we're going to leave this city unless you give us money. And what I saw, the sort of, when Mike Illich uh, came to, to the city of Detroit and decided that he was going to redo the Fox and he was going to uh, keep the Red Wings uh, at Joe Lewis, uh, there was... Coleman Young at the time had a an incredible deal. I mean, it was an unprecedented deal to some extent. I mean, he gave him control of uh, Kobo and the parking garages. I mean, everything was set up for him. There there wasn't a lot that he had to pay. Uh, and I think what that did is it set a, a dangerous precedent, which is if and at the time, if you remember too, when uh, when the Red Wing right before the Red Wings uh, was were owned by. Uh, Illich, the the you had the Pistons leaving, you had the Lions leaving, so there was a there was a legitimate fear that we were about to lose another sports facility. So Coleman Young actually came in and he said, um, "I'm going to I'm going to build an arena uh, and just hope that the Red Wings, uh, which had been playing at I believe Olympia and Grand River, uh, and just hope that the Red Wings will will stay in Detroit." And Coleman Young said, I'm going to build this and just see if I can get him to do it. Even though at the time, uh, the Red Wings owner was planning on moving to the suburbs. Well, it ended up working. Uh, and it was because of the, the tax breaks at the time. And at the time, there, this was sort of a trend, which was to move sports teams uh, from downtown areas to the suburbs. Because at that time, we still had a lot of people moving out of, out of downtown areas, out of, out of uh, cities, and then into the suburbs. Well, now you're seeing the, the reverse. So when you see what Illich received, I mean, uh, he didn't have to pay for very much uh, other than uh, property taxes at, at, the, uh, at Joe Lewis. Um, $285 million uh, is, a, is, a, is a lot of money. And, and for me, the issue with that is uh, the money that is used to pay for that it comes from the downtown development authority. It's captured tax dollars, and it, my argument for a long time has been downtown is doing just fine. Cass Corridor is doing just fine now without uh, needing a downtown development authority. I mean, they were created to sort of jumpstart development, not necessarily to continue it while there's you have this big momentum going. Yeah, to sustain it indefinitely, basically. Yeah. yeah. So. You know, I think that was a, that was a lot of money, um, and I think what Detroit kept fearing is we're going to lose another team. Um, but you see, uh, well, now this re this trend reversing where pe where teams are now moving downtown areas, 
and that's and that's the same way you know you got a lot of people move into downtown detroit now um and i think you know with tom gorse i mean here's a guy who you know built or who bought a hundred million dollar mansion when he was negotiating this 34 and a half million dollar deal with duggan and he didn't just get the 34 and a half million dollars he got um he got he doesn't have to pay property taxes on his practice facility uh there's some uh money there to clean up the the site um you know so for me it's like i totally agree that that ne- that that project needed to be done something needed to be done to fill that area whether or not illich had been sitting on that property and uh, other developers had been sitting on that property for a long time anyway that probably you know i've, I've lived in the cast corridor now for you know on and off for 10 years so i've seen what what has happened to that area so it definitely is needed now what the question is did we really need to pay 285 million dollars for the red wings and 34 and a half million dollars for tom gorse to come down here and i think that's that's really the big question and your your ire just to be clear is at the city essentially i mean you yeah. don't blame the billionaire for taking what he can get right no i mean i think you know a- any you know any good entrepreneur is going to do something like that where they're going to try to leverage um, but but my issue is you know is the bl- it, this is essentially blackmail. This is what teams do. This is what they've been doing for a long time. Uh, you know, this is if you look at some teams, some cities are surprised when a team actually leaves. And I think that sort of woke up people. I can't remember if it was the Cleveland Browns or who it was that was somebody was leaving, and people were just shocked. Like how how's this how's this happening? Uh, so team owners started to realize like hey we can we can just keep threatening to leave. Uh, but by doing that, by you know, by give by giving into this, what you're doing is essentially saying, every time we need in renovations to our facility or whenever we need a new facility, don't worry, we got your back. I mean, what happens when we pay this money back? I mean, Detroit ta- the the DDA needs to continue existing, continue to capture that money that's that's really needed in other places now. I, th- I mean, I would argue that the DDA could be abolished now. And, and, and that money could be used in a better way. I mean, we have private development that's working. I mean, the, the capitalist system is working downtown. Uh, so I think we can, we, we can let that go. But the problem is, is you can't, you have, you have to continue to capture those tax dollars that otherwise would go to schools and, uh, you know, into the general fund. But you can't do that until the bonds are paid off. So we're looking at the DDA continuing to capture tax dollars until, you know, 2040, 2041, 2042. Um, and that's a long time to be doing that when you see the rest of the city in, in dire need of money. Well, I'm curious for both your answers to this. I mean, I'll, I'll, Steve, you can go first, but let's say you're the dictator of Detroit. There's no council. You're just your God in Detroit. It's your call. What do you do? Do you tell, do you play hardball? Do you take the risk of them leaving? Do you just tell them no, not one dime? What's your stance? Well, I think, you know, you can, there's somewhere, there's a happy medium, I think, between $285 million and nothing. Um, you know the the actual person who was negotiating this from the DDA uh, ended up getting a job with uh, with with Illich's. You know, I mean, and this this actually happened during the Red Wings time too, uh, when when they when they stayed in Detroit. So I I think at that point you know you start you play a little bit more hardball than I think Detroit played. Um, I I don't think you know Mayor Duggan said that. He, when he became mayor, he wanted nothing more than the Pistons to come down, come downtown. Um, city council had an opportunity to call the, the Pistons bluff when they said they were going to stay, they potentially stay in Auburn Hill. I mean, nobody, everybody knows they don't have a choice anymore. I mean, the the the, the, 
the, the money's a lot of the money's already been spent uh, on, on accommodating the new Pistons Arena. I think the council never needed to approve that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think you need to be a tougher negotiator. You need to get the public involved. Find out what the public thinks. I mean, there there are some states where if you're going to be using tax increment financing where there's required vote, um, that's something that could happen too in Detroit. But if I were the dictator of Detroit, yeah, you're the <laughs> dictator. <in this> um, <laughs> hypothetical, right? Uh, you know, my, my my concern my concern would be how much revenue are they realistically going to bring in, and um, as a result of you know things like income taxes, uh, and what are they what value are they bringing here? And 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 uh, you know I think something like two hundred eighty five million dollars. There's not a lot of downtown areas, and, and downtown Detroit is hot right now. I mean, everybody's talking about it. I mean, even across the world are talking about it. And you have this prime spot in the Cass Corridor. It was just open. I mean, you can't find a place that close to a downtown area um, that's just open like that. Uh, so they got a heck of a deal. Um, I, I think $285 million is way too much money. I, I think the mo- one of the most important things that we need to do now that we have downtown the momentum's going the capital system's working let's let that play out but let's stop giving all this money um to these billionaires to do something they probably would do anyways in their best interest i mean look at the look at how much pistons look at the pistons uh how, their attendance records you know in the last four or five years i mean they've been the lowest in the league uh, so they needed they needed to do something like this coming to the coming to the red wings arena they now have uh, you know they can get more. They can get more money for the luxury seating and, and, and stuff like that. So I mean, this was a this did. I don't, I don't think that needed to happen. And again, if I were a dictator of Detroit, I would have uh, probably had a, a a better deal with Illich's and and would have considered you know like well what impact is this going to have by depriving these future tax dollars that Detroiters could have used? What is that impact going to be on the neighborhoods? Chad, where do you stand on this? I mean, you're a dictator. What do you do? Well, well Justin, let's look at the context of, of the two deals. Um, so the bonds, the DDA bonds for, for the Red Wings, when it was, this was just going to be a Red Wings arena, um, the legislation allowing the capture of these bonds and issue the capture of the taxes, it was already actually allowed, has been, been allowed for 30-some years. But the, the mechanism to allow the DDA to, to go this far passed in the legislature in the end of 2012 um, and having covered the legislature at the time I can I can attest that it was hardly explained what exactly was occurring that this was going to be uh, the leveraging of a quarter billion dollars of taxpayer money over the next um, uh, generation basically to fund um, a billionaire's uh, stadium um, but but it was it was fa- essentially set up at the time, uh, context, that the city of Detroit was under a financial review. Uh, we were headed towards a consent agreement uh, in, in, in early 2013. Um, the city council um, was um, fairly dysfunctional. Um, the mayor, uh, Dave Bing, was not exactly always on top of things, and, um, and, and the city was bleeding cash. At the same time, Dan Gilbert was, was had just moved downtown a year before, with his uh, seven thousand employees at the time. Now it's it's for fifteen, sixteen thousand, um, but he was starting to buy up uh, all kinds of property at fire sale prices. The Illiches came forward, had this plan uh, to do this, um, and at the time, um, the, the folks in state government were trying to get their hands around. Detroit as a municipality and 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 for the purposes of basically getting 
um, this the city from from stopping to bleed cash and and be a functional city on so many fronts where it wasn't functioning uh, at all, and they're trying to get a, a, a this to portray, you know, essentially so they could go out and sell Detroit as a as a place because Rick Snyder even being basically a lifelong uh, Ann Arborite. Um, really has an affinity for um, an urban walkable area in downtown and really um, has, you know, tried to, um, has seen, basically bought into this this vision that Dan Gilbert and others have had that was really kind of lacking in previous leadership, either business leadership or political leadership. Because, you know, in the previous sort of regime, we got uh, people who thought, hey, we should just plop a big, huge 2,000-bed jail down on Gratiot because that, well, that's, what, that's what that land's supposed to be for. Um, and now we got people that are thinking, yeah, really, and that, maybe that's not the best use of that land. Um, but, there, but in this period between, I call it you know, post-Kwame, uh, t- t- between Kwame and, and bankruptcy, Detroit was essentially in a political leadership um, uh, spiral um, where nobody was really in charge. Nobody really had any vision. And so you get this interesting dynamic where this billionaire comes and brings his company downtown and and starts buying up all this land. This other billionaire has been sort of quietly sitting there waiting, collecting their five five dollars per pizza and 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 waiting and biding time to make their their move and so they they go to the legislature they just jam this thing through without any debate um and so they get they get you know start building the stadium and and all of a sudden you know all the other business people are building a a new uh new you know train up up woodward avenue and tearing up the street and things are happening and people are taking notice at the same time, the city is seemingly starting to work its way out of of, of like the you know, the uh, the fi- financial morass that it had dug itself into, and and so then along comes uh, um, Tom Gores, and he decides you know that this is the momentum is here. I gotta I gotta get down there because everyone wants to get in on this, and I think what I think with this debate kind of got a more new focus on this on this sort of you know this, this sort of uh, billionaires reaching in and grabbing um, uh, money uh, um, is when Gores comes in and you know basically says I need thirty four and a half million dollars to make this happen, and then it may there, a lot of people kind of started to look at this and thought that was a little more um, questionable than I think the original two two thousand twelve deal where the city was on on its back and needed some sort of boost. Even though, um, it, you know, you look at, and, and it's hard for people to understand, but the money they're capturing is not very much money coming out of the height of the city of city hall. It's money that is uh, sometimes dedicated to other purposes, dedicated to county millages, is dedicated to the school aid fund. It is coming out of the height of the school aid fund for sure. And But Detroit's not alone. There are DDAs in, in every little uh podunk town in, in the state that capture uh, and and take away money and we have essentially sort of tiffed away our our our, our future in some in some regards um and tiff is t- tax increment financing for those uh, who don't uh, know uh, speak uh, uh muni finance um <laughs> but um but basically this is where we are and and so i i, I mean the context of of uh you know this is an election year and people are starting to sort of take a, a harder look at 
uh, this relationship between uh, the mayor and 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 the uh, uh, and the billionaire, billionaire oligarchy downtown, and they're and they're starting to question why the heck does you know Gorez get to you know put his hand in the tail for thirty four million when that's exactly basically what he spent upgrading Auburn Hills just two years ago. Um, I mean, it's literally the almost the same exact amount of money. Um, so people people question that, and I think it's a healthy debate. And the healthy debate maybe is the key term there. I know Steve was apoplectic about the Pistons roll out with the, the Illiches, and they're announcing this is a done deal, this is great, they got the billboard of Andre Drummond on the highway, and it's just the best thing ever. And poor Steve's writing these articles like, wait a minute, like we haven't done a vote on this? Like This has not been decided by the city, and this, they basically just, you said, I think, ramrodded it through. So I, I think that's been a lot of the issue with people. It's not just the result. It's the process that led us to the result. Even if you're in favor of it, you can't just expedite something that serious. You're not talking about a cup of coffee here with the type of dollars. So I, that's my biggest issue and where I sort of land definitely with Stephen, I think with you too as, as well, Chad, is you can't, when you're dealing with this sum of money, you can't just roll out uh, Tom Gores with Chris Illich and announce this move when the city hasn't really sat down and had a vote on it. I, I, that was my big issue with it, frankly. But all that said, I am very happy that they are coming downtown and all this development's going on again, selfishly. Um, I'm not as well-versed in the issues and the implications with the school district down there. Obviously, Steve is, is quite well-versed in that. But I want to move off Detroit a little bit. I want to talk about journalism. You two, in my estimation, as I've said, are the best journalists in the state. You guys... Uh, really are, I would say, probably the biggest shit starters in the state. Definitely Steve. I mean, Steve has been through hell and back just to do his job, essentially. And I want to talk a little bit about journalism just in general and also in Detroit. You know, I've reported a couple times, and uh, my former uh, co-worker Jeff Moss has reported, I believe, the same thing, uh, that Tony Paul of the Detroit News, uh, your former colleague as well, Chad, was essentially blocked from the beat writer position for the Detroit Tigers, for the Detroit News, and the reason for it is the Detroit Tigers organization made it very clear that he was too negative and they didn't want him down there on a daily basis covering the beat. The Detroit Tigers obliged to give the day and ended up giving the job to Chris McCoskey. Not going to call him a bunch of names, but he is not the journalist in my estimation that Tony Paul is. I'll start with you, Steve. Do you not see some type of an issue with the subject of a newspaper, the Detroit Tigers, a rather major subject, dictating who they want to cover them at a ostensibly independent newspaper and the newspaper listening and granting them their wish. Is that not troublesome? Oh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just not supposed to happen. That's not how journal. you're not supposed to have that kind of pressure. Uh, you're supposed to, you know, be able to report, as long as you're reporting fairly, that no, no corporation, no outside interest should dictate how that coverage occurs, as long as it's fair and it's objective. Uh, it, it, and, you know, having this is the kind of stuff that I see, you know, I see often. And I don't think, you know, I'm not the kind of cynical person who thinks that, you know, newspapers and, and journalists are paid off. I don't I don't think that's the case at all. I think that there's just this sort of um, desire, uh, you know, especially with with with, with, you know, with the TV news and in and, and, and some of the newspapers. There's a desire to sort of be a part of the in crowd, the cool crowd, that you know, this part of the, 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 you know, this renaissance in downtown Detroit and places like that. Um, but you're not, you're not supposed to have that happen. And my friend, you know, Charlie Leduff dealt with the same issue with, with, with Fox Two. Uh, in that, you know, remember Fox, you have the Fox, Fox News running, or Fox, I'm sorry, not Fox News, but Fox uh, 
you got the Fox Sport Network, which is running the Tigers, you know, and then you have Charlie, uh, right, you know, talking about negatively and, and but truthfully about some of the issues uh, that that the um, that Illich, you know, with with the Illich deal and then with with the Gilbert deal, and I think and he received a lot of pressure from you know his news managers to just knock it off, just stop reporting on it. And uh, you know I, I've I've seen this I've seen this time and time again with with the way they treated him and you know luckily he's gone from there now and and, and can have a little bit more independence but that's just not supposed to happen um, you know I when I worked at the Free Press and I worked this at the Free Press for six years um, you know there were people in in the administration saying they you know they didn't like my attitude that got back to my bosses and 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 they weren't happy with that I mean, if, if i did anything wrong i wouldn't like your attitude either because you are you get you get on people pretty quick well i yeah, yeah i mean I, I, for, for me i mean I, I have this really weird quirk i i think you know even since I, since I was young is i hate false narratives sort of like this idea when somebody's telling you what the truth is when it's not the truth is sort of like uh, gaslighting you know that goes on i mean you, you're seeing this a lot with trump um so when i see that kind of stuff i just it, it keeps me up at night i mean it's like this but this is not the way things are happening so i um, so it is. It, it, it is. It is difficult, I guess, for bosses to, uh, to to understand where some of that passion is coming from. But um, you know, I received when when I was at the Free Press, and I think what what really ended up being the final straw and really strained my relationship with my editors was it was during the time of the financial emergency management. Um, the idea, what well, the editor, we got a direct. Uh, and it would, we had a directive from the top editor at the time saying, don't call it a takeover. We don't want to have uh, negative news about what is really important in Detroit. And, and I thought, well, well this, is, this is absurd. Uh, you know, I don't want to have an editor from, who, by the way, was from Iowa, had no experience you know, in Detroit, uh, didn't understand uh, you know, some of the dynamic problems in Detroit, and him coming in here and saying, you know, this is the way that we're going to do it. Uh, so that's not supposed to happen in journalism. And, and I, I think when I, when I see that, I, I guess the idealism that I brought to this industry, you know, sort of was shattered. And I thought, well, maybe the only way to do this is on my own and to have, have my own site. And, and I think that's largely what's sort of motivated me behind this because th- there's absolutely should no outside group should be able to tell a reporter how to cover something as long as that reporter is being fair and, and, and is being truthful. And, I mean, the Detroit Tigers, and I, I know this for a fact, the Detroit Tigers essentially dictated a hiring decision by an outlet to cover them. Yeah. I, I mean, Chad, I don't want you to come here and bash your former employer. I, I understand why you can't do that probably. But just, I mean, in general, is that not an issue for the Detroit News to even listen to the Tigers and their preferences for who covers the team? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know anything about this. Um, I, I was previously the Lansing bureau chief, and my and I and because of that, I was um, sort of thankfully isolated from daily office politics and and uh, decision making, and 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 all, almost knew nothing about the sports section except for what I, I was basically just a reader. Uh, I mean, I, I hardly knew even any of the sports writers. Um, I've yet to meet Lynn Henning in person, uh, but but a big fan of his. Uh, um, oh, we and, can talk about that later. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I so I um, I really don't know much about this whole whole drama that went on. I mean, all, all, other than the rumblings on the streets, um, but I what I do have, you no, know, I have my own experience, and and the, the 
I've I've seen I've seen the two types of journalists. Uh, the the I've seen the bomb thrower, and I've and I've watched I've watched the um, the cozy um, uh, columnist. Uh, we'll just call um, him or her. Who um, who nuzzles up to uh, the seat of power and 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 basically you know toes uh, toes the line of um, of those uh, who who you know sort of call the shots uh, and and so what I've always tra- and that's kind of the access journalist okay that's that's the guy who gets a guy or gal gets to always be in the C-suite and then there's the accountability journalist who which uh, you know Steve is really. On that on that wing, uh, and 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 one of the best in the business at that, um, I try to to uh, do a little bit of both, um, and 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 be the journalist that you can trust to talk to about something um, on the record or off the record, uh, and and shoot straight with, and at the same time, um, I'm you know I'm not going to um, you know shy away from a big story, and I'm not going to shy away from. Uh, calling some calling a state takeover a state takeover uh, uh, of city hall. I mean, and so and I never really sugarcoat language. Um, I've uh, been kind of big critic of other uh, journalists who don't, you know, call a tax break, a, you know, or, or you know, a subsidy uh, or, or a tax credit is definitely a subsidy. I mean, I just I, that drives me nuts when when journalists kind of just gloss over or take sort of the bureaucratic or corporate uh, terminology of things and and adopt it as and, and basically train the public that you know this is this is this is something uh, to be heralded and well it may be herald but you, you can at least call it what it is and so uh, that's how I sort of all practice my craft it's it's it served me well I've covered three legislatures in three different states um, and and different governors and senators and and uh, and and you know and you know now I'm covering a mayor and I'm covering a a, a city um, a, a, a sort of a you know, really interesting time in its history um, that um, you know I'm trying to both navigate uh, the halls of power and uh, also when when necessary um, uh, point out when they are wrong. Well, and for the record, I don't consider Tony Paul a bomb thrower. I just consider him a guy that says, uh, hey, if you're screwing up, he's going to say, hey, look, this guy's screwing up. I just think he's a truth teller. I think people like Chris McCoskey, there's a lot of them out there, especially in this town, they don't want to ruffle any feathers ever. I mean, the Detroit Tigers have never done anything wrong, and if they have, it wasn't their fault. I just, there's always some qualifier. So I don't consider Tony Paul, you know, Drew Sharp was a bomb thrower. I don't think Tony Paul is a bomb thrower. I just think he's a truth teller, and he was blocked for it. I mean, then you guys have been uh, maybe not had that exact experience, but you guys have been uh, well versed, I would say, in dealing with blowback from the subjects that you're covering just for telling the truth. I mean, you guys haven't gone on to Motor City Muckraker or the Detroit News or Cranes and and lied about someone or smeared someone intentionally. I've never seen that from you guys, but you would think that you guys were the devil incarnate according to some of the subjects you cover. I want to touch on Drew Sharp a little bit. We talked about Chad's former employer, your former employer at the Detroit Free Press, the aforementioned Drew Sharp. Most of the audience already knows I had the Drew Sharp plagiarism story that came out in December of 2015 at the com. Uh, Jeff Moss assisted in that report as well. Steve, you worked there. Look, everything was pretty well detailed in my report. I went right to... Um, the Society of Professional Journalists Ethics Board. I gave them everything I had before the story went to print. I said, do you see an issue with what Drew Sharp did, taking the work of David Harnes from iSportsWeb, not attributing it, just essentially taking all of his information and plopping it 
on the pages of the Detroit Free Press. The SBJ Ethics Board said it was egregious, yeah. that it was a, a blatant example of plagiarism. I asked him what he thought. The, it was Fred Brown over at the Ethics Board there. I asked him what he thought of the Detroit Free Press's refusal to respond to it when we were seeking comment for over a week. Said it was abominable. You can't do that yeah. when there's a legitimate uh, case and evidence of plagiarism, even if you want to dispute it. you got to dispute it. You can't go radio silent. You worked at, a, at the Detroit Free Press for six years. You're familiar with the story. What was your take on the Free Press's handling of that? Drew Sharp, we didn't have to talk about them. Their editorial decision to just ignore it. It, it was appalling. I mean, I, when you know, don't be, when Gannett took over about, he took over in about 2005 or 2004, um, there was a drastic change in how the Free Press sort of covered itself. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'll bring this up as an example. Look at how, look what happened with Mitch Album was caught uh, with that fabrication, they, uh, they, the free press editors assigned the best investigative reporters they had, and they investigated the hell out of it. Yeah, Jennifer Dixon and a few others yeah. dug in and spent weeks. Yeah, I mean, and it was it, it was it was incredible the amount of time that they were giving, and, it, and that's what a newspaper is supposed to do. I remember when Newsday, its own reporters, w- broke the story that. The publishers had been violating the law by uh, sort of uh, showing, superfi- showing that they had su- these artificially high uh, um, numbers of, of the, like the, the readership numbers. And, um, you know, I, if I remember correctly, it might even been criminal charges in that. But the, here is a newspaper in New York that, that was allowed to investigate its own business side of it. That wouldn't happen today. But I mean, what happened with, with with Drew Sharp? I mean, there was no excuse for that. The silence was was deafening. I I was absolutely surprised that they would do something like that. I mean, remember when Judith Miller from the New York Times was was writing poorly on the lead up to the Iraq War? You had the, you had the the New York Times on the front page, uh, you know, with an explanation and an apology. Uh, you know, you have you had until very recently the new york times had a public editor whose job was to look at whether or not stuff was fair and to report it without having to answer to the bosses and what the and i know a little bit more about this than i have been able to say but i i I can say that the decision not to comment on that and not to publicize that came from outside of the free press it actually came from the company gannett Uh, so that was a decision um that to me really damaged the reputation of the free press. You can't day in and day out criticize people and, and governments and private businesses and, and do that day in and day out and not hold yourself accountable too. Because people deserve to, if you make a mistake, just fess up to it and apologize, explain what happened, let people know what happened. But I mean, for the free press, it's just like, well, let's just pretend it doesn't happen. And I, I think that was, it was a terrible mistake. And it, it, it speaks to the state of, of, of journalism under some, under some uh, corporations. And I think it's particularly bad from the editorial staff, whether it was their decision or not. You're the editor. I'm going to blame you. And I'm going to blame the person above them, too. Yeah. I would resign yeah. before I would let that. I would sit on that as an editor. I, you have to have some moral compass. Mm -hmm. It is worse as an editor than it was for even Drew Sharp. Drew Sharp made a big mistake. He never owned it. That's, you know, I'm not going to sit here and trash the guy. He died, whatever. We all know it was bad. But there is an elevated, in my opinion, sense of duty from the editorial staff. They they can take a measured look at it. They're not in the moment. 
They can sit back. They can sit in a little room around a desk and talk about this. They have a higher standard of conduct than a subordinate. I thought it was terrible what they did, whether it was dictated to them or not. You just you can't do that. The irony of a, a newspaper no commenting people to death. They didn't even no comment me. They just didn't respond. And I know they were getting these messages. I spoke to uh, it was um, Kevin Bull on the phone for 10 seconds, hung up on me. Yeah. I, you know, it's not like they weren't getting our messages. They, I think you sought a comment from them. I'm not sure. But oh, yeah, the, I did. Yeah, yeah awful announcing. <laughs> I mean, Deadline Detroit, everyone was going after them. Chad, I mean, I don't assume you're going to dispute this. Editorial board has to respond to a plagiarism scandal when we have the smoking gun. Am I wrong? Uh, no, they should have responded. And, you know, there's, a, there's something that has, um, in, 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 the, in all the cuts that, that the newspapers have suffered over the last decade, there, there is something that has kind of um, uh, infested uh, news organizations. They got more insular. Um, they, they've gotten more defensive, um, and, uh, and people just nerves are just frayed beyond belief. That was one of the reasons I kind of decided to depart the Detroit News and go to Cranes and do something a little different in journalism, uh, get out of the the daily you know rat race uh, and. But, uh, but I also at times have observed not just, you know, in, in the publications I've worked at, but other publications that that they're, that the you kind of create columnists in particular um, seemingly kind of get on islands and 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 are left there uh, for for good and uh, and not given as much supervision. I mean, people know, you know, the, the sort of stories in this town about Mitch album and such. I don't need to repeat that. But. Um, but it, it's 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 kind of remarkable, um, and 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 the, and it's 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 a problem that uh, it, it compounds itself when you have this sort of shrunken staff, and then you have uh, you know these people on islands who don't uh, you know always adhere to the same rules or or even um, you know do the same work um, uh, and as uh, as the rest of the staff, and it's. It adds to, to, to what is already a, a demoralized uh, situation. I, I was very disheartened by the whole process. You know, we thought when we received the tip on it, we did all the reporting on it, we thought for sure the Free Press had to own this. I mean, we, as much as they hate the Detroit sports rag, hated Jeff Moss, hated me, we thought they were going to run with this for sure. I mean, maybe not to the extent we wanted, but they weren't certainly going to just ignore it entirely. And I spoke to so many journalists off the record. A couple went on the record in the story. I can't find one that wasn't appalled by it. I heard from, uh, I'm not going to name him, but someone at the Detroit News who told me that he had heard from his free press people that there was an edict from above. No one is supposed to talk about this. That sort of bared out. Nick Katsunika refused comments several times. And that's the other thing as an editor. Your job is not just to protect, protect the integrity of your paper. They punted that responsibility. But you have to look out for the journalists under you. And when you don't respond, that falls to the people below you because the editor is in the ivory tower. They're not in the field. They're not even on Twitter half the time. So what happened is Nick Katsunika had to answer questions about this. You know, Dave Burkett was getting bombarded partially by us. We were trying to get somebody in that building to say something. Not that it was their fault. We knew that. We weren't attacking them. But we were saying someone has to say something. Just say plagiarism is bad and this was plagiarism. I'm not saying call Drew Sharp uh, you know, a jerk or it doesn't have to be a personal thing. Yeah. Just admit that this happened it, and it was a bad thing. And we couldn't get that. It was just it was mind-blowing. Chad, I want to talk. I, I know you're going to cringe. <laughs> Two-year anniversary of your story with Representative Todd Corser and his 
detailed affair with fellow state representative Cindy Gamrat. I, this was honestly, from a, a viewer point, one of my favorite stories of 2015. And uh, it was a terrible story, for the record. I mean, families involved, but just from a, an intrigue level, one of the weirder stories ever. When John Oliver is picking up on the, the Lansing beat on his show, you know they're doing something pretty crazy. John Oliver was discussing it in length at his show, where basically you had, for those who don't know, a, and I'm going to really, really just cliff notes this, but essentially Todd Corser, a state rep, was in an affair with Sidney Gamrat, another state rep. They were trying to hide this affair. It was like the worst-kept secret in Lansing. Everyone kind of already knew from what I'm told and from what the reporting was. And uh, this started to leak out. It became an issue, and Todd Corser essentially created an insane alibi where he created a false rumor about himself being in a gay liaison with, uh, I think it was a, a male prostitute, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're just cringing, Artie. You just, you're talked to death on this, but I'm fascinated by it, so I'm going to make you do it. So, I mean, this is one of the weirder stories of 2015, to the point it got national attention. Todd Corser had this detailed, elaborate, fake story that he put out there to avoid people believing the actual story about this affair. I think he knew it was coming out. So I'm going to play a little bit of the audio, Jed, if you can draw it up. You had an interesting phone conversation with Todd Corser as this was sort of developing and coming out. You had already reported on this uh, in pretty good detail. Um, I don't know if we're gonna we're gonna play the first clip. This is Todd Corser telling Chad that he doesn't much care for his reporting. Go. I, I don't really um, care for your reporting. Um, well, I'm, I'm prepared to give a comment. Well, I'm gonna write about it because you've made such a huge issue of this whole thing. Um, you asked for the investigation. Yeah, but, yeah, but you're, kind of a, you're kind of an idiot along the way. I mean, you only took one side of that, Chad. So, I don't... Well, what side of it is... I'm going to give you my, my comment. <laughs> so, uh, Chad, I don't think you're an idiot, but uh, <laughs> before we move on, I mean, I think you reported that pretty fairly. I don't think you're a dumb guy. I mean, was he? Was that your first interaction with him? That phone call? Like, I, I know no, he threw no. you out of the office at one point. Yeah, I mean, so I, I um, wrote about Todd Corser when he became elected um, to to the to, um, to the legislature. Him and Cindy Gamrat and another representative, um, Gary Glenn of Midland, they had come into the legislature in the beginning of 2015, um, building themselves as like a, tr- a Tea Party caucus of sorts, a trio. They were going to come in and 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 sort of set the place on fire. You know that, that was that was shake they, things up on shake the shake things up a little bit. Uh, try to try to uh, you know put the Republican establishment on notice that um, that the days of you know uh, sort of uh, seemingly big government of Republicanism were over. And quickly, um, Representative Glenn realized I shouldn't be part of this uh, trio. And I think Representative Glenn, you know, he won't admit it publicly, but I think he realized that they were already having the, the other two were having an affair, and he didn't want to be mixed up with whatever they were doing. Um, and the family values politician, by the way, I had to throw it yeah. in there. So yeah, Todd Corser was a family values guy. Yeah, they both ran on this really strong family values. Todd had you know four children, and Cindy has three children, and and uh, they were from uh, Cindy Gammers from Allegan County, and Todd's from Lapeer County, just just uh, twenty miles north of here, where we're at in Rochester. And so he, um, uh, they, they, they ran, they came out and came out swinging early. And I wrote a little story about, you know, the, the, tr- the trio and quickly, you know, you know the, um, Glenn broke off from the, from the trio, but, um, they came out swinging and, um, 
like what 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 struck me immediately was odd was they 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 issued what they call a liberty response to the governor's state of the state address. Now usually the Democrats respond, or the or the minority party, the opposite party, but they were part of the same party, uh, issuing their own like um, you know manifesto. And Corser was writing these emails like and these these long. Three, four thousand word uh, diatribes um, that uh, people were getting, and they they got on his list. He had assembled thirty some thousand people on an email list. They're getting it, so he was quickly building himself a bunch of of, of statewide uh, recognition, and and then Cindy Gamrat got herself, and by April of that year, got herself kicked out of the caucus for allegedly leaking. Uh, information that was said in caucus, which is is kind of Lansing insider BS at times. I mean, people the idea that you know that things said in caucus have to stay in caucus just kind of. I mean, that's it's the very walking a political. It's crime, very right? selective, yeah. and and you know, and so they just didn't like um, um, Todd Corson and Cindy Gamrat because Todd Corson and Cindy Gamrat weren't really playing by the rules. They just weren't. They was. They weren't really. Um, you know, willing to this board do the kind of things you have to do to get along to go along, and, and that's the reality. Um, and so at the same time, one, I mean, reporters like to watch these flamethrowers at times because they're kind of interesting and such. But I immediately thought, boy, these two are going nowhere and they're probably going to get primary and they're going to be out of here. I stopped paying attention to them. And then by, um, by May, um, all this, late May, around the Mackinac conference time, there's all these rumors about them having an affair. And, and I, I, I just I don't really care if people are having affairs in Lansing. That's just not what I'm writing about. It's, it's, it, 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 but only if, if they're using taxpayer resources to facilitate the affair or, or to cover it up, do I get interested? And so um, this email started circulating, circulating around town. There's this like anonymous email. I forget the guy's name that they, Todd had come up with. But he put this name on this email saying, you know, this is a really lewd thing that was being passed around town that only a few hundred people initially got, um, saying that Todd Corser had been caught uh, having sex with a male prostitute behind a prominent Lansing nightclub, which everybody laughed at and said, there's no prominent Lansing no. nightclubs. <laughs> um, and uh, and so it was, it was kind of laughed about, and people initially thought, I bet some Republicans said, I think Corser did this to himself. And I'm like, that, that can't be. There's no way. It's not true. And again, I kind of ignored these two because it just didn't, they, didn't, they were going nowhere. And this email was just, you know, this sort of the tawdry thing that gets passed around uh, in campaigns and such. And so um, this is sort of the story here. I'm progressing. But um, Fourth of July rolls around. I took a week long uh, vacation and and painted my deck that week and I I remember coming back from from the vacation and thinking I got I got some things I want to dig into and at the time I, this is July of 2015 I decided I, I got to dig into this water issue in Flint there's something going on up there uh, and uh, and I had heard from 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 some family friends and 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 it really just wasn't the Flint water issues were nearly not getting outside of the, of the Flint media and and so I had had it my my mindset that I had mid July non election year I'm gonna dig into the Flint water crisis and then literally that day I got back from vacation I get a call from somebody um, from a source who says um, the you, did you see the brief in MERS last week about Corser and Gamrat's aides being fired and I said yeah I thought that was kind of weird um, they're like 
they would like to talk with you, they've got an audio tape um, that proves that Todd Corser and Cindy Gamray had an affair and that Todd sent that salacious email against himself. And I said, okay, can we meet tomorrow? (laughs) And, um, and, and so I sat down with this Keith Allard and Ben Graham, uh, Keith was 26 at the time. Ben was like 22. These guys are just young guys who just were legislative aides, wanted to be in work in politics and, and kind of quickly found out that they had, they had basically taken jobs with the wrong people. Um, that they had become hostage to the uh, Corser and Gamrat, and and that Corser and Gamrat basically were in office to facilitate an affair uh, together, um, and they weren't all that interested in learning about the process of, of bills. I mean, Todd sort of famously was uh, there was an email that surfaced where Todd said, "I don't need to learn how to make you know the bill process. You know, I don't need to know the amendment process." And we're not here to do that. And um, and not, not <laughs> and so there was this. They just found themselves sort of hostage in this in this combined office, which was was what set off a flare to me. Uh, um, they had combined in their office together um, for purposes of of this uh, this Liberty Caucus, and also just sort of they thought they're going to create some kind of like a powerhouse duo. But uh, that was what, and, and and it was really kind of not really well known around Lansing that they had done this. It just had, it had really hadn't. The Republicans had just kind of went along with it, okay. But everyone, one as the year progressed, everyone started realizing this was more about you know something going on between the two of them. But this combined office, as it, as it turned out, was really just to facilitate the affair. Um, and and so uh, they these guys sit down, they play this this tape for me, and it's. And it's Todd Corser late at night um, in, in, on May 19th, 2015. He calls this aide, Ben Graham, to his office in Lapeer to sit down. And he's all distressed. And he's, he la- starts laying out to him that we've been caught. And, and Todd, well, um, Ben doesn't know what he's walking into. He, he's, he's not really sure what's going on. The guy says uh, over the phone, I need you to destroy me tonight, and um, he he didn't know what that meant. He, he and he, re- he really wasn't sure if he was walking into some some kind of like murder suicide. His boss was increasingly erratic. So Ben, um, and this is on the you can hear this on the tape. He actually starts the tape in his car, and you can actually hear him locking and loading his gun. Um, and and it, he packed uh, um, while he went into Courser's office, not knowing what Courser was going to do into his law office in Lapeer. Um, you can hear the sound of, 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 the, of the gun being locked. And, um, and you can actually, I mean, the ambient sound in this thing is amazing because you actually can hear the train passing by, uh, which is how I was able to sort of authentic, authenticate that, that this is where the, the thing had took place which is a little something to learn in, in, in watching The Fugitive. Um, but um, <laughs> as, as so he sits down and he starts laying out his whole story and there's this long pauses in this thing. It's, it's the, most, the most dramatic thing you ever hear, heard. Um, and Courser says, well, look, I need, uh, he's like, what I have in mind is I need you to send out an email. Uh, I need you to, to send out a controlled burn is what he called it. Um, to uh, quote inoculate the herd and Ben said what do you mean he's like I need people to believe that um, that you know I'm, I'm not uh, you know th- th- this th- I need people to believe this fake story or at least look at it and say hey 
there's someone out to get them there and, and when the real story um you know emerges that they're having that him and gamma are having an affair they won't believe it because there was someone else distributed this this salacious story of him having uh sex with another man and um and ben's like i can't believe what do you mean he's like you know have you written something yet he's like yeah and he starts to he proceeds to start reading it aloud which which pretty much mirrored the words of the email that were sent out and it was uh, I mean I'm listening to this and it was just the most amazing unbelievable uh, thing I've ever heard um, you know as Todd Corser is literally the words and it's like seared in my brain um, he says Todd Corser caught on tape you know and um <laughs> And uh, and and Todd Corser actually had really no idea he was literally being uh, taped and being caught on tape and that his control burn would just turn eventually turn into a big, huge inferno. It was a disaster. I want to the way you handled that phone call the first time I heard that I actually reached out to you at the time uh, on Twitter and sent you a DM and just said that was one of the greatest things I ever heard. I want to play a little more from it. This is uh, for anyone listening. I mean, this is how you do journalism. Chad just, just doesn't give a crap. I just mean, for just, context, I yeah. mean this this is November. This is week. This is after Todd Corser has resigned, um, and the the context of the call is um, the, the the there was a report on a Sunday morning in the in the Lapeer uh, County Press that the the the, the Lapeer County prosecutor was not going to charge um, Joe Gamrat. Uh, with extortion uh, for being the uh, being behind the anonymous text messages that Todd Corser says sent him into a, to this uh, idea to send out the control burn email. I mean, this kind of crazy um, uh, um, uh, reaction uh, that uh, Joe Gamrat basically was texting both him and his wife and uh, and Todd Corser anonymously, trying to get them to stop having an affair. Uh, and Todd then later went to the police trying to get them to, to charge uh, Joe Gamret for essentially trying to stop Todd from having sex with his wife. And th- that'll come through in the clips we're going to play where essentially Todd Corser, and you can go on his Facebook now, This guy it's two years later, this nut is still blaming everybody but himself. He's had no accountability for this whatsoever. He's blaming this all on some shadow conspiracy to, to bury him. Look, guys, no one in the world really gives a crap. No one cares enough about a random state rep to form some grand conspiracy to bury him. No one cares. No one cares. But Todd Corser thinks people care. Let's play clip two, and this is Chad flexing the journalism muscle. Go. Hold on. Hold on. We're going to pull it up in a second. So essentially, Corser is telling Chad he doesn't care for his reporting in clip one. We move on to the claims from Corser that he has a text message demonstrating evidence of some type of extortion plot against him. Jed, just give me uh, give me a little thumbs up when you're ready. Um, and there's a couple clips on this where he is just coming at Chad with fire. We're going to play the first one right now. Jed, roll it. You have that in a text message to who? In a text message between these guys. How do you have that? Between between Keith, Ben, and Josh. Well, how do you have a copy of that, Todd? Because there's one other person on that stream, Chad. <laughs> okay. So, you know, look, if your, your reporting was one-sided, it was intentionally one-sided, 
This is all wrapped up in food cake and fed to the public. My reporting focused on the actions of two representatives in office. <laughs> I just love your... This, you're not buying this at all, I'm guessing. I mean, am I reading that right? You're not buying well, this explanation? So this, this call, the context of it is Todd wouldn't have answered my phone. And that is recorded in a Mount Pleasant hotel room. My wife and I had spent a night away from the child at uh, CMU to go to the CMU Journalism Hall of Fame banquet the night before. And... I had woke up and read this Lapeer County Press story, which I had a subscription to Lapeer County Press for about six months in 2015 as I was uh, reading and learning all things about Courser. Um, and um, so I was, I, I, I told Amanda, I got to call Courser. Give me your phone. And uh, she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, he won't answer my number, um, but he probably he might answer your number. You might be surprised, even though it's like one or three digits off. Um, and, and so I t- put the tape recorder on, put, the, put, put, put Amanda's, my wife's phone on, 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 uh, um, uh, on speaker and, and called. And my wife is sitting there right next to me. And, and I got the phone and she's like, Oh my God! I had no idea how horrible he was. Oh my God! And because uh, I've, you know, I had, I had, um, yeah, for the story, I had confronted Courser at his office. Um, we went to his office um, on a morning. Uh, his his law office is right on Main Street in La, down in Lapeer on the Main Drag, right across the street from from a McDonald's, which is a nice place to hang out and drink coffee and while you're staking out waiting for Todd yeah. Courser to arrive at work. Um, and so. Courser basically hadn't talked to me uh, hardly at all since 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 that moment when we tried when we went in there with um, I had my phone hooked up to a, a small mini speaker and I started playing the thing for him. I said, "Why well, like to talk to you about this this recording that uh, uh, Keith uh, Ben uh, Ben Graham made here in this office of you, you plotting to send out the control burn email?" <laughs> and uh, he immediately started set, you know kicking us out. So. Uh, and only a, a one other, a couple other interactions uh, at the Capitol where he you know, blew me off at the, the, uh, d- during the uh, um, uh, expulsion proceedings. So I really hadn't talked to him. So um, uh, he, you know, this was uh, this was me kind of you know g- calling him randomly and seeing if he would pick up, and he did. Uh, and and then having this conversation that I you know I I decided to put it out for the public to to consume. I you know in in the interest of transparency. I love the way he said your name in that clip. He just, uh, you know, because I looked at, there's a third person on the call, Chad. I mean, it's just <laughs> the heavy emphasis, like it's totally demeaning. The guy, the guy is such a lying sack of crap. Uh, Jed, can you pull up the third and fourth clip? I want to play those back to back. This is really just the setup, and then Chad drops the hammer on him. This comes out in, in, in the civil case. You know, I'll report about this. All the evidence comes out where? So what will I do, Chad? What will that do for the hell that my family's been put through for your one-sided bullshit? Yeah, look, what will that do? Look, Todd, the, the, story, the initial story no, I wrote no. was it based do, on Dad? your actions. What will, it, what will that do? Oh, well, it will add... It'll add... Uh, it'll, it'll, what? It'll, Rich Smith's taxpayer resources based on these guys' lies. That's what it was. I, look, you created this, okay? You created I, this... I created this? You created this jo- joint that. office. If you were being extorted, Todd, you attention. would have went to the you police to begin with. That's what you did. 
No, I had no intention of smearing anybody. I had an intention of, of holding two public officials accountable. Just, uh, just terrific poise under fire. I, that, that's why I reached out to you after I heard this clip. I mean, the guy's just, he's call, he calls you an asshole at one point in a different clip we didn't play. You know, he, he says that you're essentially a hack of a journalist. You're writing this hit piece on him. You set out to smear him. And you're just, eh, whatever. You're a, you're a state official. You're an elected official just doing my job, just covering you. I mean, you were just ice. Were you, like, a little bit rattled during that call? I mean, were you as cool as you sounded? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I was, I was rattled. I mean, I had given him four days. I, I confronted him on a Monday morning. Um, we published on Friday. Um, I mean, it, it, it was a story that, you know, I had a lot of, you know, editors and, and a lawyer, and, and it was fine to have come because – as I had an editor once tell me in Delaware, if you're going to back back the cannon up to the Capitol, you know, shoot straight. So, so this this story, I had three weeks on this story, which is a lifetime in journalism now, um, and and I would have only probably had three weeks if it hadn't been the you know the dead of of summer, uh, in in a non-election year that gave me the time to to really fully vet it and challenge uh, it, and you know, we, and I. I we we intentionally the Detroit News we intentionally cut out all kinds of we we cut the clips down to certain spots because it's an hour and a half and there's there was just some vile things that he said about his wife and stuff in there about Joe Gamrat the husband uh, and that we just didn't feel like we that we needed to just expose to the public uh, there was no 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 value coming out of bring dragging these spouses into this thing. Um, and it was really just focused on, you know, the, 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 the question that my editor kept saying and we just kept ch- ch- trying to chip away at, did they, did they misuse taxpayer resources by maintaining this affair, by, by basically uh, getting these young aides to try to be complicit? Who, in the end, for, for months they went along with it because they thought their job was in the line. And then when they stopped going along with it, they got fired. Uh, and, and that's... That's what the House representatives um, decided to do when they brought uh, expulsion charges against them and forced Todd Corser to resign, and, and, they, and they expelled Cindy Gamera, making her the only female legislator in, in history to be expelled. And one of, just one of the weirder stories in the history of the state. I just, it, it was an embarrassment to the entire state, in my opinion, and it was just a bad story. Again, I loved it from a, an intrigue standpoint, but... I definitely praise your work on that. It was some of the best journalism work in the last 10 years in the state, in my opinion. You had the guy coming at you strong, calling every name in the book. You just kept poking the bear, poking the bear, threw you out of the office. didn't matter. You kept coming for him. And not a lot of guys have a spine like that in this business. There's not a lot of guys and gals that have the courage in this area or really anywhere in this country that I see. I, I thought that was just terrific work, and you certainly have my highest compliments on that. Thank you. Uh, Steve, I want to move to you really quick, and we're, we're going to be wrapping pretty soon, but you have had a contentious history with a lot of the subjects you've covered. We were doing some show prep today, and you know I saw this, which I had heard of before, this YouTube video of you getting physically thrown out of a public meeting by yeah. the Wayne State Police Department. Yeah, I was working for Reuters at the time. Yeah, you were. You, yeah. it said the Reuters reporter, Steve Neveling. Yeah. I mean, Tell me a little bit about what, what happened there and what you what was the follow-up. I mean, for those of you who haven't seen this, just you can look up Steve Neveling on YouTube. It's like the first or second hit. And it's Steve getting, by a police officer, basically chucked out of this building. Tell us what happened there. Yeah, I even broke my camera. Yeah, well, what I was doing, and I was with uh, another reporter at the time, and we apparently got there because what had happened is this was a 
Kevin Orr, the emergency manager, I think this was like his first public meeting, you know, where people from the public could go out. But it was held at Wayne State. It was held in a smaller facility. It was almost like sort of like invite only. So you didn't really get anybody who, you know, who were actually concerned about the takeover of the state, who, were, who, who was able to go there. And I was there to cover it for Reuters. And it, 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 it turned out that I guess if you didn't get there a half hour early, you weren't going to get in. So uh, two reporters, uh, myself included, were, were stuck in the lobby and we couldn't leave. And uh, so protesters had, had sort of converged in the area, and they were inside the lobby area, and, and protesters were yelling. And, um, you know, I've had, I've had some bad experiences where I've seen police manhandle protesters. And um, so I wanted to stay there just in case, you know, anything broke out, um, especially when we're talking about, um, you know, a lot of racial, th- there's a lot of racial tension when you have, you know, the takeover of a black city. and. Um, you, most of the protesters out there were, were black and um, you, you had uh, essentially mostly white police officers so I wanted to, to stay and observe um, so the protesters were sort of doing their thing and I was sort of at the corner you know quietly observing and I, for whatever reason the Wayne State officer decided that I was going to be the first person they were going to throw out of the building um, so <laughs> what had happened was I, I'm just sitting there and the guy just grabs me um, out, of, out of nowhere. And <clears throat> immediately, as soon as the cop grabs me, all the other cops say, start yelling um, unlawful touching or something like that, as if I had done something to provoke this. I mean, they just all sort of chanted it like, you know, none of them had even seen what had happened. I never touched the cop. I mean, I'm used to this stuff. I'm removed from meetings occasionally. and. Uh, you know, I'm not going to put up a fight, I'm not, uh, resist arrest or anything like that. Uh, so the officer decided I was going to be the first person out, and he literally throws me out the door. I mean, I, my body flies out the door, my camera breaks, um, and, and luckily, you know, some of that, some of that video actually was able to, to, to get back. But, um, you know, that was an example of something. And, and this, interestingly enough, Reuters calls me after this and, sa- and you know, it's grilling me about this, like, what, what, you, what, are you, what are you part of the story? Should I just left at the beginning? And then that was pretty much like I had two weeks left in Reuters and I was like, I'm out of here. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, be some obedient, you know, person who's just going to sit there while, you know, people in, in my city are, be, you know, potentially being manhandled by police and weren't allowed into this public meeting to look at the emergency manager. So, um that's what happened. I never ended up filing a complaint. You know, I, I actually the, the Wayne State Police Chief. Um, I have a lot of respect for, and had he known about this at the time, he would have. You know, he would have. He would have said something about it. But, but it was. It, it was. It was a pretty crazy moment. Well, here's the thing. Even if you had done something bad, as long as it wasn't a, a violent. You know, you're trying to punch someone. You're trying right. to punch an officer. Even if you were being belligerent. The excessive force to me was pretty obvious. I mean, just uh, as a guy that you know went to law school and knows a little bit about this stuff, it was blatant excessive force. Uh, absent of you doing something aggressive yourself towards the officer or someone else, yeah. I the video is disturbing. When I saw, it, I just said, you looked like you went like five feet. Just yeah, in the air. I did. Yeah, I had not, my glasses were knocked off, and yeah, was, you know I had some scrapes and <laughs> bruises. And it's, that's actually not the first time. I mean, at, at city council. Um, there was a, a, a closed door meeting where the, the building, w- the meeting wasn't even full yet, and they were just sort of holding spots for certain supporters of the of the budget that was coming out. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm telling city council, the city council uh, had police officers there. I was like, you can't do this. This is illegal. You know, and I'm, I'm going to be loud about it. This is not allowed. And uh, so it, it, at one point, the meeting sort of lets out and all these people start walking out of the meeting. So clearly I can walk in. And out of nowhere, the cop just pushes me against a wall. And um, I couldn't, I couldn't move. I mean, I, I had, uh, I ended up getting, you know, having whiplash. I ended up in the emergency room. Um, and you know, funny enough, uh, m- the editors, my bosses, were more concerned about, well, what was your attitude before that that, that sort of led up to this? Um, and nothing ever happened. It's, of it's it. like the journalism equivalent of like, okay, what were you wearing before you got raped? Right, right, I mean, right, it's, it's right. Like, well, you on. were wearing jeans. Come on. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, well, maybe that skirt should have been so short. Uh, Chad, right. I don't think you, you haven't been assaulted by any of your subjects or a police officer yet, right? No. I mean, I've I've been. Uh, no, not really. No, no not really. Uh, Steve, Steve is like uh, the Saving Private Ryan, like uh, the, the beaches of Normandy. The guy's been. I, I don't. I don't want to slander you. Weren't no, no, you no, arrested no. at one point too? I mean, for covering yeah. something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- there's been all kinds of incidents. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, uh, Chad and I both, I think, probably have a very different approach, and and I and I and I love Chad's approach. I mean, that poise, you know, is is, is actually very effective. Um, and, and, and at times I can, you know, sort of have this sort of bulldog dog approach where I'm, you know, like, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm, you know, I'm not. Uh, so, you know, I've gotten myself in, in, in trouble for that at one point. I was arrested, put in jail, um, actually, but it, was, it wasn't it was by the police. It was, I mean, the police put me in jail, but it wasn't over police. It was over a, uh, a, a man who had been harassing me because I had uh, published videos of a, of, of all these white gross point cops, uh, basically making fun of a mentally ill uh, black man. And uh, so, so this guy was actually, had been following me uh, sort of everywhere I went. I mean, I was actually being tracked by this guy. And he came up to me at a fire outside of Ozzy and Sweet's house, which he he was an African-American doctor who moved into an all white neighborhood and uh, a crowd of people actually tried to, you know, kill him. I mean, they were throwing rocks at his house. They were trying to get into his house. He ended up shooting into the crowd. He won the case. So it's this famous house, and, and there's two houses next to it that are burning. So I'm, I'm headed over there. I'm like, this is, a, this is a historic house that's about to burn. And I get there, and this guy comes up and calls me an N-word lover. And <coughs> he starts, and he, and he, and he pushes me. And <laughs> what is going on here? We're like, this, is a, this is not the kind of neighborhood where you do this. There's no cops there. It's dark. There's people all over the place. It's commotion. I mean, this is the east, you know, this is the east side of Detroit, the kind of in not a very good part of the east side and you know, this guy's pushing me and then he would turn his camera on and he'd start video he would start recording me um saying steve why won't you ask, answer a question about um why you uh you harassed the gross point cops and you know i'm trying to just tell this guy just get away from me get away from me so he'd turn off his camera and he'd start pushing me in a little bit or he'd sort of you know kept putting his shoulder into me and He's just trying to get me to do something. I'm, like, I'm not going to do anything. And, you know, a couple minutes later, he turns the camera back on and he's just getting, he's antagonizing me, antagonizing me. And at this point, for like three, four or five minutes, I said, I kept warning him, you've got to get away from me. You're now scaring me and I'm going to defend myself. So I, you know, I, I punched the guy in the nose and knocked him on the ground. And uh, he, the police, uh, he filed a police report. Uh, about uh, the police, the, the court system, the police, the prosecutor's office. Nobody ever told me I had a warrant out for my arrest. 
so I find out actually about a year and a half later while I'm in Gross Point, I get pulled over by Gross Point police and they're like, oh, look who it is. You have a warrant out for your arrest. And, you know, all these Gross Point cops are taking pictures of me as I'm getting arrested and hauled away. I spend a day in jail. Um, I won the case uh, very easily. I mean, it was uh, a very easy argument to win. I mean, the guy was clearly a threat to me. But, I mean, those are the kind of things that happen. And, I mean, you look at, like, you know, how you have, you have Gross Point, these same Gross Point cops who were, you know, who, who were suspended for making fun of a mentally ill black man by taking pictures of him, not taking pictures of me as I'm getting arrested. Um, you know, it, it's just like one of those infuriating moments, you know, it, it, where you say, am I, am I really, do, do, am I real, do I have the temperament to be in this, in, in this industry anymore? Because this is, this is getting crazy. I'm sitting in jail uh, because somebody was harassing me over my reporting. It's incredible what you have gone through and the pictures I've seen. I, last question for, for you, Steve. I don't know if you can even answer this, but you had a tweet about Mark Snyder from the Detroit Free Press saying that he was essentially forced out, forced to resign due to, quote, Trump-like behavior. Yeah. Are you able to elaborate on what happened there, what what happened with Mark Snyder? Yeah, I mean, I, I can actually. This is, this is quite interesting. Um, I had received a call um, from uh, two different sources. Well, actually, I had one call, a call from the original source, and then I called another source at the Free Press asking what had happened. And they had essentially said that Mark Snyder had, Mark Snyder and, and, and uh, was it, is it Kevin Bull? Is that his name? Yes. Or, yeah. Yep. Were both sort of, there were some female reporters who, ca- who complained uh, that, uh, that there was some Trump-like behavior. I never really got a sort of uh, explanation of what they meant by Trump-like. Uh, it could be a lot of things. Could it be a lot of yeah. things. Well, in what, what happened, and it turned out, and, 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 and uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I will totally, uh, own up to this uh those sources were wrong um from what i understand i had uh i got i I had some higher up uh, editors uh uh, reach out to me and saying that's that's not what happened i mean it's just simply not what happened and so i i called these two reporters like this is what everybody's saying this is what we, we all understand and it didn't happen um so I don't know if somebody's trying to cover up for them or if they actually did, but my understanding after that was that they were very respected in the in the newsroom, um, and ex- except for whatever these complaints were about. Um, so essentially, that's that's sort of how how it unfolded, and it's sort of one of those moments where I'm like, you know, I, I, had, I had held on to this for days. I wasn't planning on writing a story. I didn't think it was interesting enough for a story, but you know, so I tweeted it out, and you know, sure enough two sources who work at the free press um, just had the information wrong or the editors who were calling me are, are covering up for them. That was interesting and it, good for you to obviously retract that. Uh, you're already better than most people at the Detroit Free Press from their uh, sordid history of lack of editorial uh, wisdom, I would say. And, <laughs> and so good for you for that. Uh, Chad, uh, Live and Good, and Steve Neveling, uh, thank you so much for both joining us. I think we ran a little longer than I expected. I hope you guys don't hate me for it, but uh, really good discussion from both of you. It's a yeah, pleasure. Thanks, thanks, thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. This is, uh, again, Spiro Avenue, Episode 9. That was Steve Neveling of Motor City Muckraker and Chad Live and Good of uh, Cranes Detroit, uh, two of the finest journalists in the state. They're my one and two in some order. I won't say which. Uh, while they're both sitting we'll here. Talk about that later. I'll tell my producer later <laughs> who I like more, but you guys are one and two in some order, but I highly encourage you to listen to them whenever they're on the air somewhere, read them whenever you can. Uh, This is the type of journalism you really need in the state. These guys don't care. They're the two biggest shit starters in the state, and I mean that with the highest regard and and the best compliments. 
So thank you guys both for what you do. Thank you for joining us, and it's been really a pleasure. I'd, I'd really like to have both of you back at some point. Absolutely. Welcome to the sure. uh, nicest studio I've been in. Oh, well, thank you. We, we try to have it nicer at Spiro Avenue. This was my 30th birthday present from my wife. She does love me very much. Uh, I, I'm not Todd Corser's uh, family values uh, <laughs> kind of guy. I mean, I, I don't do the dishes enough, but I'm not going to be – concocting an elaborate scheme uh, about me having sex with a guy behind a prominent Rochester nightclub and uh, covering up any sordid affairs there. But uh, again, thank you guys both for what you do. Thanks for joining us. And thank you, as always, to our producer, Jed Schilling, for uh, pressing all the buttons over there, running a great board for us. Uh, We should be back at the end of this week. We are working on finalizing our plans with Charles Rogers, former Michigan State star, Detroit Lions bust. He is going to be interesting when we get him on. He's been a little tough to book, but we're looking forward to it. So this has been Spiro Avenue, Episode 9. Happy to be with you tonight and hope to see you again in just a few days. Thank you.